0: Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaps Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by The Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell.
1: Hey, Kurt, and I'm Rich Verma. It's great to see you, and, and hello to all of our listeners
0: and viewers. We have a terrific guest today. Uh, absolutely correct, Rich, and it's great to see you as well today. We're very excited to be joined by one of the most well-respected and thoughtful experts on South Asian India. Dr. Aparna Pandey. Dr. Pandey is research fellow and director of the Hudson Institute's initiative on the future of India and South Asia. She's also the author of the recently released in August, Making India Great, The Promise of a Reluctant Global Power. It's really an excellent book, a very timely book, and I'm really looking forward to digging into it during our conversation today.
1: Yeah, Kurt, it's it's a great book. And importantly, for those who are not India experts. It's easy to read and comprehend. It's it's not super long, uh, but it's really powerful. And it's not something we can say a lot about books from scholars. And Kurt, that's no dig at at you. I know Uh, what you're saying, Rich. I got it. But um, as you noted, Dr. Pandey is one of the most notable experts when it comes to South Asia. She's written several other excellent books on India and Pakistan. I'll just pulled up her, her last book from Chanakya to Modi, which was an excellent book. And we're thrilled to have her with us on Tea Leaves today. So Arpana, welcome uh, to Tea Leaves.
2: Thank you so much, Ambassador and Ambassador Campbell. Wonderful to be here.
1: Yeah, well thank you. So I want to talk about the book, but first we want to learn a little bit about you. How did you even start down this path as South Asia scholar? Tell us a little bit about your your journey to this point and your place at the Hudson Institute.
2: Of course. Actually, it's, it's interesting. I'm one of those people who wanted to do a PhD, wanted to work on foreign policy when I was even in my undergrad and master's. So I grew up in, I was born in Delhi and I grew up in Lucknow. My father was in the Indian bureaucratic service. Mm. And then I uh, did my undergrad and master's in history, which led to an interest in foreign policy, international relations. So I did a And MPhil, a second master's in international relations from JNU, Jawaharlal Nehru University. Then I worked with the United Nations for a few years because I was tossing between whether I should work at the UN or I should go into academia. And then I decided academia. But when I was coming for my PhD, I had a choice between coming to the US and the United Kingdom. Hmm. And I wanted to work at a think tank. I had read about American think tanks, they interested me. And I said, if I want to work at a US think tank, I must get a PhD in the United States. And so I came to Boston, and I studied uh, and I did my PhD in international relations. And it was sort of, I'd say, part coincidence that a professor there was a former Pakistani ambassador. Ambassador Hussain Akani, and I started talking to him about my PhD thesis, th- uh, topic, and he recommended Pakistan's foreign policy. So my dissertation and my first book was on Pakistan's foreign policy. Wow! And I sort of told him that, you know, you work at Carnegie, you work at Hudson, I would like to work at one of those think tanks. And that is what then led me, I came to DC a couple of times for interviews, I met people around town. And eventually in 2010, Hudson made me an offer to start their South Asia program. Mm. And so I've been there for around 10 years now. I like it, I like think tank work. I mean, I love teaching, but I love the policy world. And that's how I'm here today.
1: <laughs> well, if there's, it's a great background. And I love the fact that this is what you wanted to do. And if there's someone that knows about foreign policy and think tanks, it's my colleague here, Dr. Campbell. But tell us a little bit about uh, Hudson and, and the kind of work you've been doing there on and leading the South Asia effort.
2: So um, our South Asia program is around six or seven years old to 2013, 2014. We formally set it up. The focus areas are sort of primarily India, Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, my interest is mainly foreign policy. We bring out reports. We have events, both public and, and off the record. We also have a, lo- a number of books, both which I and Ambassador Ghani have written. So we have books on Pakistan. We have books on India. We have pa- books on India, Pakistan. <laughs> and we have, uh, we brought out a few reports, including one on US, uh, U.S. policy towards Pakistan in 2017. So the sort of, you know, it's a, it's a small group. It's just two of us. Um, But I believe we are quite productive for the fact that it's just two people (laughs) working on South Asia at Hudson. It's uh, uh, a Hudson's advantage, I would say, is that we we work on areas we like. We are given complete freedom. We write both books and, and reports. And Hudson has always supported us in everything we do.
0: I love that. So, Aparna, tell us a little bit about, so your your most recent book sort of describes the recent trajectory of India, but I'd like you to help us understand where you think U.S.-India relations are heading. Ambassador Verma Rich has just completed a thesis that looks at the various phases of the U.S.-India relationship over the last 40 years or so, and it's really interesting, and he helps kind of understand what are the key dimensions, both personalities and policy issues. You know, I, I think for a long time, we've all been advocates of the idea of takeoff, that this bilateral relationship will sort of re- finally, you know, reach escape orbit, so to speak, and have a kind of self-creating dynamism that will bring uh, people, strategists closer together. I think we've probably achieved that. I, I'm not sure we've accomplished that strictly in a bilateral context. I think probably China has something to do with that more directly, but it might be useful. Just give us a sense of where you think U.S.-India relations. I I think there are some, you know, in both bureaucracies, still some ambivalence about the other, probably more in India than the United States, but give us a sense of what you think is possible, where things stand currently, and what do you expect over the course of the next couple of years?
2: Um, of course dr campbell um i would say um you know the last 20 years have brought sort of have really helped the relationship uh you know the last four u.s presidents every indian prime minister has really i mean we may not use the word alliance or allies but we are uh, allies or alliance for lack of uh, without using that word i would say the strategic dimension is the strongest today the defense military one, mm-hmm. um, I would say the econ- the economic uh, relationship needs a lot more work, maybe more on in India, but also some, amount, some work in the U.S. People-to-people tie relationship is good, though I would say there are certain challenges which are there, both with the direction India is taking domestically and the direction that the U.S. has been taking the last few years. So there will be some hiccups or some friction in that part of the relationship as well. So it's sort of, you know, the three pegs or four pegs are still strong. But one, I mean, for some time, the people-to-people dimension was stronger. For some time, the economic, right now, the strategic. Going ahead, I would say the strategic will remain important. You mentioned China. Uh, the China factor is remaining, is going to be strong. Uh, the U.S. sees China as a peer competitor or a peer rival irrespective who wins the election in November 2020, China is going to, the main policy towards China will remain consistent from the US side. China is not budging away from India's border or stopping its string of pearls policy in South Asia and the Indian Ocean region. So China will remain a rival and a threat for India. So the strategic defense dimension will remain strong. It will get stronger. The hiccups there will be India's potential. Yes, I'm sure both of you know that India, Indian economy suffered its worst contraction in five, in seven decades. It can bounce back in the next few months and by next year, but we have to wait and see whether it's able to bounce back to three, four, five, six percent by next year. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't bounce back, then India will have less resources, not only for its own domestic economic sort of uh, sort of policies, but also for investing in military and and defense. Um, the second part is India's democratic institutions have come under threat over the last few years. And whether we like it or not, uh, sort of, you know, the, the two countries, a part of that relationship has always been a relationship between value, which is values-based, between two democracies, uh, which have a similar vision of the world. And as sort of both India and the U.S., but maybe India a little more, faces struggles on its democratic front, it will have some impact on the India-U.S. bilateral relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and third, I would say that, you know, ju- just the purely economic dimension, there's a protectionist, the rise in protectionism in India. India has gone through these phases of going, becoming more protectionist, slightly less protectionist, then going back to being more protectionist. And so the protectionist nationalism in India, and partly in the U.S., uh, sort of you know will also come in the way of sort of boosting this relationship. So I'd say there's potential, but there's also there are these hiccups which are old. I mean, both of you would have would have experienced this in, these in the last decades that you worked on India. It's nothing new. The only new part would be India's democratic and the U.S. nationalist populist changes which have occurred.
1: It's a, great, it's a great outline for, for people to really understand some of the obstacles and opportunities. It's also a good segue, I think, to your book about making India great. I love the title. It's somewhat provocative. But your, what you describe about what's possible in U.S.-India relations, I, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but a lot of this is really up to India in terms of how fast How far, how close it wants to be, and what kind of role India wants to play in the kind of new 21st century order. You have this great line. I just want to read it to the listeners in your book. You say, much as Indians want their country to be a global leader, there is also a hesitance in building and exercising power. It's almost as if India wants to be a great power because it is its right to be one. What do you, what do you mean by that?
2: Um, thank you, Pastor Verma. What I mean by that is um, Indians have always believed in Indian leaders, Indian writers, Indian strategists, and we can go back, Indian thinkers, to the 1930s and 40s, the, start, the Indian national movement, that India, because it's 5,000 years old and only one of two 5,000 years your old continuous civilizations because of its population size, because of its location in Asia and because, and then in later years you can add the fact that India believed that it was one of the examples for the developing countries and maybe an example, even for the developed countries that India had a right to be on the global high table simply because of those reasons. Most Indians, I mean, they could be Indian-Americans, they could be Indian Fijis, they could be Indians born in Zambia. There's a belief that India is special. India is unique. India is different. And, and there,
1: is has- some data, there is some data to back this up, right? Absolutely. Like you, you, there's a great stat that you mentioned. You say in the mid-1700s, India accounted for 25% of the world's industrial output. And that's consistent with other guests we've had on the show, where they would say, look, the 19th and 20th centuries were really a departure from the rest of history this is a natural reordering where china and india will be the dominant players in the years ahead so there's this kind of sense that this is just the natural reordering and of course india will be a a great global power
2: absolutely but i would but, but i would say that you know what i would what i would add is uh yes sort of both China and India believe that it's inevitable they will rise, but China has worked in the, over the last three, four decades. It's one of three countries which has consistently grow, grown its economy at six to seven to eight, nine percent in order to build its military, in order to achieve its dreams. The problem on India's side is as a belief that, you know, irrespective, sometimes irrespective of what we do, we will reach that goal. It doesn't happen that way. You do need to build your economy. Economy will not build, build itself. miraculously. You do need a strong military and you will not have it. If you spend 1.5% of GDP, most of which goes for salaries and pensions on your military. And thirdly, it will not build. I mean, you cannot build that all of these. If, if most of your focus stays on social issues, yeah. Uh, and weakening existing institutions.
1: I just have one, one more question, then I'll turn it over sure. to Kurt. You know, you, you lay out some of these challenges, you know, and I've read the book. It's an incredible book. My sense is you're, you're both optimistic cautiously, but you're also worried. That Again, these are my words, <laughs> and you can tell me if I'm wrong. You're worried about the social issues. You're worried about the lack of spending on military, uh, hard power. You're you're worried about attitudinal, kind of attitudes being stuck in the in the prior centuries. Uh, and I, is that fair that you you have concern? And I guess what I don't know is how do you get past some of some of these challenges? And they're very different, right? The cultural challenges are different from the economic and and so forth.
2: You are right, Ambassador Ambassador Varma. I mean, I would say that, you know, in the short term, my recommendations would be, you know, instead of focusing on the social issues, you already won elections. You don't need to focus on divisive politics. You need to focus on economic. And economics is, you know, crisis. The Indian state normally responds to economics during crises. The last time it did it was 1990, 1991, when we had no option. COVID provides an opportunity to implement reforms which have been pending for three decades. Uh, The question is, do you want to implement those reforms or not? Uh, You have them on the book, you can implement them. And the crisis provides you the cover. Plus you have legitimacy. You don't really need to worry about for the next four years for elections. Um, And on the military side, you can up the spending, but at the end of the day, it's a question of, priorities. What is your priority? Is your priority winning elections at local and state level and focusing on social? Or is your priority standing up to China and becoming the sort of, you know, projecting power in your neighborhood? Um, Yoga will not project power in the neighborhood.
0: (laughs) Uh, Aparna, can I ask you just uh, very useful answers? I'm curious about how views of uh, China in India, particularly among the strategic elite, are changing. So when I worked in, again, I realized, you know, a decade ago, might as well be 100 years ago. During that period, privately, Indian friends were always cautious and wary about China, but they didn't want public displays of discomfort or strategic anxiety. They, they wanted those to be sort of more behind the scenes My sense is that recent steps along the border, some of the things that we've seen in the high-handed and heavy-handed approaches from China towards India have led the Indian elite to be much more circumspect, careful, and even in some circumstances, hostile uh, towards uh, China. And you see that playing out more publicly. Is that correct or is that just a, a sort of a simplistic reading from afar?
2: Um, Dr. Campbell, I would say, I will be Indian and I will say yes and no. (laughs) Uh, You are correct to the extent that there has been um, sort of, you know, there has been a change in some parts of the Indian elite and the Indian strategic community. That, I mean, there's maybe a delayed recognition that, that just because you have high level summits with China and because you have a personal relationship, that is not going to change the view of the Chinese state. Um, And the Chinese state and the China does lay claim to large segments of Indian territory. China has deep, has embedded itself within most of South Asia and the Indian ocean region, and that will not transform itself overnight. So that is true. Well, I will say I'm still hesitant is I'm not sure if that actually, whether it is temporary because of what is happening right now, or it is something which will actually sort of, you know, transform the Indian strategic elite's view of China in the long term, let's say sort of, and and ensure consistent policies. I'll give you an example. Yes, uh, I agree it is easy to ban apps because technical and digital stuff is the easiest to do. It is difficult to sort of ban manufacturing or ban any pharmaceutical products which Indian pharma may need from China. But the question is, Sort of you know yes uh, sort of you know something like saying no more foreign direct investment from a neighboring country means that going ahead uh, there will be fewer there will be less chinese investment but sort of has sort of at the end of the day does the has the indian state decided that while we do have diplomatic engagement with china china is the threatened rival and we need to boost all our economic and military potential and Sort of deepen our engagement with Quad Indo-Pacific, or is it just temporary to send a message to China and we'll go back to business as usual in a few years? I'm not very sure if that drastic change has taken place deeply in the system, or sort of you know it is uh, it is just something which is which is a few months or a few years from now. I mean that's what I that's how I see it.
0: Thank you. That's very valuable and very interesting. I do want to ask a delicate question. Rich got to this when he was asking about the health of both democracies. Obviously, one of the things that's celebrated between India and the United States is our cherished history and our approach to democracy. I think it'd be fair to say that in both countries right now, we have leaders that tend more towards the authoritarian and they, I, I think, reinforce each other in interesting ways. What do you think that's going to do to the to the nature of the bilateral relationship? Some suggest that tra- the trajectory on is more closer to Israel than it is to Great Britain. And you know, highly specific, focusing specifically on some key challenging issues, and and, and not striving for the kind of bipartisan qualities that we've seen with the more stable bilateral relationships. What, what's your view on that?
2: Um, I agree to some extent. Um, my concern <laughs> is that... <You're>, yeah, <laughs> I love
0: it. I love it. Yes and no to some extent.
2: <laughs> um, but my concern so is that... The, the in-
0: <laughs> I'm on to you. I'm on to you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah.
2: uh, my concern is that the India-US relationship has been bipartisan. Uh, for a very long time and there are there are signs that it may not remain that I guess it will depend on both countries to some extent right so we have to see what happens in the in the elections in November 2020 sort of you know what happens in this country will also frame what happens in India to some sort of you know Indian India's institutions are seven decades old they are not that strong once they are weakened, it'll take a very long time for the institutions to to sort of to, to be rebuilt. Will the India US relationship become one track only? I don't think so. And I think partly that has to do with the fact that Um, You know, the Indian-American sort of, you know, the the people-to-people relationship, not just the diaspora, but the students and people who work in this country, including someone like me, sort of also form part of that uh, bigger people-to-people divide uh, sort of relationship. And that won't change irrespective of what happens in India and the U.S. So I would say the economic, uh, strategic and people-to-people dimension will remain. Will the will the will rise in nationalism in in both countries, uh, especially in India, cause frictions in the relationship? Yes, but and here here I'll be the optimist. Ambassador Varma called me, which is that sort of I believe that countries frame frame relationships based on national interest, and it is in both countries' national interest, especially with the rise of China, and uh, to have a better relationship. Yeah. I hope I partly answered your question.
1: (laughs) Let me let me ask you, um, you know, back to the title of your book about India becoming a global power. You know, what if it's possible that India doesn't have such an aspiration? And I I point you to a statement, I think it was the Indian defense chief earlier this year, maybe a few months ago, who said, I think when talking about the Indian budget, you know, we, we don't need that big of the budget you think we need because our responsibilities are really quite limited to our kind of immediate neighborhood, our immediate region. And I could just guess, you know, like, India, or U.S. military leaders and strategic thinkers, that was a body blow to them because mm-hmm. here we've been waiting, you know, for burden sharing, for increased global responsibilities to take, frankly, some of the burden off of U.S. forces, U.S. troops. And it was a real wake-up call to say, that's not where we're headed.
2: So uh, I agree with you. And I think that's the problem. What, what sort of, you know, what The question I want to ask is, you know, how can you say that you want to play, that you are the regional hegemon, you would like the United States and, if possible, China and other external power to recognize you as a regional hegemon. You believe that Indian Ocean region is your backyard. You can and sort of you have to prepare for a two front war with China and Pakistan or or even the one front war with China. And yet you do not believe that you will need military for it. You don't believe you will need to build. So, you know, you may not want to be a global power, sort of, you know, but you sort of, you know, let's put it this way. Global power is being thrust upon you if you want to play the role that you want to. You can't can't do all the things you want to do without uh, sufficient economic and military power. So either say india does not care about what happens in the indian ocean region we don't care what china does we will have a relationship with china where china can do what it wants as long as china does not attack us say that you know indo-pacific is fine as long as everybody else builds our economy and military you right. can't have it both ways
1: right right it's a great point can i just i, I know we're <laughs> we're short on time i just want to go around the neighborhood a bit as we talk about the we talked about china but a um, lot of focus on Afghanistan and what the US might or might not do in helping with a peace deal. We've, we've seen that there is a deal, there isn't a deal. But just give listeners some appreciation as to why India is so concerned about the Taliban getting some degree of power sharing in a, in a new peace arrangement.
2: Um, three reasons, India matters, so Afghanistan matters to India for its national security interests. If Afghanistan is under Taliban or if there's again a civil war, then the Indian sort of strategic community believes there will be, the Taliban will provide safe havens to groups which will attack India. And Pakistan's military will move them to Afghanistan like they did in the 1990s. Two, India has actually sort of, you know, invested two to three billion dollars in Afghanistan's development. Um, and India would therefore like a stable Afghanistan. Hopefully, I mean, the hope has always been that Afghanistan will be India's, you know, entryway to Central Asia. That's one of the reasons why, for example, India has a relationship with Iran. We may talk about civilizational ties. At the end of the day, it is strategic. India needs to access Afghanistan. Shah is one of the ways to do so, since Pakistan won't allow India. And third, India has always believed that uh, the legitimate government, which is democratically elected, uh, should be the government which is recognized, not a, not an insurgent group backed by a neighboring country, which is imposed on Afghanistan.
1: Yeah, those are strong. Those are strong points, and then it leads me to the country which uh, <laughs> you know you're pretty you're pretty pessimistic about for understandable reasons, which is Pakistan. And you, you do say that, look, in, unless the Pakistani military and intelligence establishment changes its ways, there is little hope for normal relations between the two countries. I mean, there's, but this is the box we've been in for decades. Yeah.
2: I agree. It's not, I mean, I guess the sort of, you know, that box hasn't changed from their side. The problem on the Indian side is that every Indian Prime Minister normally used to come in and the first thing they would do in the first six months was sort of reach out to their Pakistani counterpart. Uh, Mr. Modi did try that, and then after that, for the last four years, Indian policy has been isolate Pakistan, uh, use the international community to pressure Pakistan to change its ways. I don't think that's going to change if American pressure over the last six decades has not changed Pakistan's strategic calculus. Indian desire to isolate Pakistan won't change it. Thirdly, there have been changes within India domestically as well. And there is, especially post-Mumbai 2008, there's less of an incentive for any Indian government to say that we want to open ties with Pakistan or rebuild ties unless Pakistan acts uh, against terrorism. Mm-hmm. And so Kashmir for Pakistan, terrorism for India, and there's no incentive on sort of, you know, for either side to actually restart uh, the relationship or have a conversation. So, and as China and Pakistan get closer, India has less of an incentive because Ch- India sees Pakistan more as a Chinese you know, a secondary deterrent or ally rather than being an independent actor.
1: Yeah. That's amazing, Kurt. Can I ask one final question before? Final you? Question, uh, yeah, <laughs> so uh, you know, so much of your book is about India's internal challenges, right? It, and as you know, Prime Minister Modi would say, these hesitations of history, but coupled with these real internal challenges. And when, when I think about them, you know, the attitudes towards minorities, attitudes towards the caste system, attitudes towards women attitudes towards a more market-based economy. You know, so much of this, I think we naively think in Western societies that with development, with education, and over time, of course, these attitudes change. And you know, nations rightfully kind of come into the, you know, what we would say this this kind of modern uh, international trading and and you know political system. But your book, I think, challenges that inevitability of just leaving it up to development and education. And in fact, you you call into question whether India's education system is on the right track. I mean, tell us about that tension. This isn't just about having more people educated and more economic development. This is about real choices that Indian leaders and the Indian people are going to have to make.
2: Absolutely. And um, I agree. And the reason is that, Sort of, you know, what you just said, Ambassador Varma, is something that India's founding fathers actually believed in, like Nehru. Uh, Nehru's belief was that as long as you educated people and you modernized economy and established a democracy, uh, over time, society would also modernize or become more progressive. And as long as you had a constitution which talks about liberal and socially progressive ideas, that would trickle down. Um, The problem has been that India has always had these two contending ideas about what is India and what should India be? Uh, What does it mean to be an Indian? What should Indian society be? What should be the role of the state? What should be the sort of, you know, what should economy and what should be our relationship with the world? For the last few years, this sort of, you know, this debate has come out in the open. Because sort of, you know, because the more conservative element has actually won political power. And so the the sort of the debate which used to take place maybe in in classrooms uh, and in books is now out in the open. And I don't know which, which way it will go. Mm. because at the end of the day, politics decides a lot of these issues. And society, I mean, Indian society is to a large extent still as conservative as it was seven decades ago. Yeah. Um, and we have to wait and see which way it it go. Amazing,
0: make. amazing! Thank you so much. Excellent answers, really very impressive. And it just—I hope it entices our readers to pick up your book. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Pandy. We really appreciate you spending your time and your your uh, enthusiasm and, and excitement from your subject, despite your yesing and knowing was was. <laughs> <laughs> quite attractive. And we really appreciate it. I, I want to remind everyone to pick up a copy of your book with the not provocative at all title, Making India Great, The Promise of a Reluctant Global Power. Is recently released, available at bookstores, and uh, pick it up when you can. Rich? Yeah. And uh, Dr. Pandey, thank you so much. Great colleague and, and
1: friend. And we we learn a lot every time we we talk to you. So, thank you for being with us. And thank you to all of our listeners as well. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, uh, I'd like to mention that you can access the full video of this recorded conversation with Dr. Pandey online on our website at theasiagroup.com. So, stay safe and healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time. And thanks again. Thank, thank,
2: you. thank you so much, Ambassador Varma. Thank you, Dr. Pandey. Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Bye.